why don't you join me in Revelation chapter 2 again tonight. Revelation chapter number 2. And uh, we'll have a word of prayer and we'll get into the preaching tonight. Revelation chapter 2. And we will start in verse 12. We're actually going to cover all the way through verse 29, um, but we'll kind of hit it from a higher point of view. We won't dig into the weeds too much, but Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. All right. <clears throat> How about we have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the text tonight. Father, we're thankful for your word. I'm thankful for um, these folks who make up Fellowship Baptist Church and their faithfulness to be here on a Wednesday night in July and uh, to come here to hear what your word has to say to us. And God, I just pray you'd help me tonight as I do my best to share what you said in Revelation 2. God, I pray to be helpful. God, I pray to be relevant and certainly pray that I would uh, be as close as possible to what you intended this text to be about. And uh, Lord, we pray that we just all be helped tonight by your word and honor you in our response to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you this question. And I'm not going to open it up like a fellowship Bible class, but I want you to think about this. What do you think is the greatest threat to the future of Fellowship Baptist Church? If you could think of, I'm not asking for out loud answers. Don't, you're getting into the message here. Unlike our fellowship Bible classes, what do you think is the greatest threat to the future of Fellowship Baptist Church? Some might say they think about maybe the direction our country has been headed over the last couple decades. And, and I know many pastor friends of mine and pastors are concerned about our country's direction and, and the rights of pastors and religious liberty specifically for Christians. Um, certainly there's an attack out there. Maybe not necessarily in this part of the country, uh, but maybe it'll get there. And so some might say, listen, the greatest threat to our church would be persecution or the limiting of our rights. Some might say that one of the threats that could jeopardize the future of this church could even be the economy. You think about uh, what has happened in the Midwest several years ago, about a decade if something like that were to happen again, it would have an effect on our church, certainly if dozens of families lost their jobs. Some might say maybe the greatest threat to the future of our church is losing our young people. That if we want Fellowship Baptist Church to be what it's been the last several decades, we have to keep the young people and we have to make sure that our young people grow up and see a Christianity and live out that Christianity in the years to come. And while all of those things would certainly be very important things to watch out for as threats to Fellowship Baptist Church, they aren't really the greatest threat to our church. I mean, we looked in Revelation chapter 2 about two weeks ago on a Sunday night, and we saw that Jesus wrote a letter to a church who was facing real persecution, like the kind none of us have experienced. Uh, people were losing their jobs. They had the government who said, you cannot worship Jesus Christ, you must worship the Roman emperor. They had that type of persecution on them, but yet what did Jesus say to the church at Smyrna? Look at verse number 10. When facing external persecution, Jesus said this, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Back to verse 10, he says that Satan himself was against the church. Satan himself was at work 
opposing the church that was there at Smyrna, and yet Jesus didn't seem to be too worried about it. He didn't seem to be that concerned. He just said, don't fear what's going to happen to you. So what, what is the biggest threat to our church? And here's the truth tonight, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight. The greatest threat to Fellowship Baptist Church is not external persecution. The greatest threat to the future of our church is internal compromise. The greatest threat to this church is not something that the outside world can do to us. Because what? guess what? This church is not built upon even mankind. This church is built upon Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Our greatest threat is not what can happen externally to us, but the greatest threat to this church is what can happen internally and lead to our demise. And we see in Revelation 2, two churches that Jesus wrote to, the church at Pergamos and the church at Thyatira. And here's what we're going to look at tonight. Jesus wrote a letter to what I would call the compromising church. The compromising church. You see, I, I, want you, I want to define compromise for you for a minute. This won't be on the screen, but I want you to think about this. If you're taking notes, write it down. If I could sum up compromise in a definition, so we under, we're all on the same page here. Here's what compromise is. When you begin to live out a version of Christianity that does not look like the Bible. When you begin to live out a version of Christianity that no longer looks like what Jesus talked about in the New Testament, but begins to resemble more like the world's philosophies, my friend, that is compromise. And it's not always doctrinal. We're going to find out tonight, sometimes compromise has nothing to do with doctrine and a lot to do with how we conduct our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Are you on the same page with me tonight? And so here Jesus writes to these two churches who both had very similar situations. In fact, we're going to look into the text tonight, and we're going to see that Jesus even used the same words to describe what was going on in those churches, and really had the same message for them. So we're going to kind of group both of those letters together. And so I think we'd all be on the same page tonight, that if the greatest threat to our church is compromise, then it's well worth our time on a Wednesday night to study the compromising church. If that is the one thing we can guard ourselves against, that'll best set us up for success in decades to come as a church, then it would be worth our time to look at what Jesus says here in Revelation 2. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to break up the message in kind of two parts. I, I want us first to answer the question, what happened to these two churches? What led to compromise in these two different churches, Pergamos and Thyatira, they both have the same things going on that led to this compromise. What happened? What are some of the factors that allowed compromise to creep into two churches that were once very strong churches? That's the first part. And then the second part of the message, here's what we're going to answer. We're going to bring it into our world, and we're going to say, what can we do as a church to prevent compromise from happening to our church? Because I think all of us care about Fellowship Baptist Church here tonight. And we all ought to, have the, ought to have the heart that I don't want what happened here to happen to this church. And that's really why Jesus preserved these letters for us. He didn't want us to endure the same things they did. So here's, here's what we're going to talk about. How did this happen? Here's number one. How did this happen? Compromise crept in 
even when these churches had a glorious past. I want you to pay attention to that tonight. That these weren't bad churches from the start. Um, these were churches that had a good reputation. These were churches that were doing a lot of things for God, yet it was these very same churches that were subject to such intense compromise that Jesus himself had to say, you better repent or I will fight against you. Look at verse number 14 at the church of Pergamos. Um, sorry, verse number 12. He says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. Now pay attention to verse 13 and 14. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. So in verses 12 and 13, here's what Jesus is writing this church. And, he, and he's saying, listen, I know where you're at. Now, none of us probably have studied what Pergamus, where that was. Pergamus would have been the uh, center place, the, the capital of what was called the Roman empirical cult. Now, I know that probably doesn't get any of you giddy and excited, and you're like, oh, I know all about that. The Roman empirical cult was where the tradition began that no longer did the Roman emperors consider themselves just leaders. They said, I am God. Bow down and worship me, or I will kill you. All right, that, that started in Pergamos. All right, and so it was common culture in Pergamos for people to not just worship at pagan temples, but to go to a, a separate place where they didn't bow down to Zeus or any of those other gods, they bowed down to who the current Roman emperor was. And, and so the Roman government began to use this and say, listen, if your church or religious group doesn't pledge allegiance to me, then I will shut you down, I will throw you in prison, or I will kill you. All right? How many of you understand why Jesus called it Satan's seat? This is a wicked place. And then on top of that, they had big old temples dedicated to Zeus. And, and if you've ever heard the New Testament preach, you're aware that with pagan worship also came prostitution and just disgusting things that were totally contrary to God's word, totally wicked, totally outside the boundaries of what God wanted. Yet here's what Jesus said to the church at Pergamos. He says, I know where you dwell, and this would, this would surprise you, verse 13, and how thou holdest fast my name. And has not denied my faith. Now hold on a second. I thought this was a compromising church. But here Jesus says, in the past, he's using the past tense, he says, in the past, you were faithful to my name. That even when the Roman government essentially put a gun to your head and said, you better bow down, you wouldn't do it. In fact, there was this guy, Antipas, who many people thought was the pastor of that church. He was so faithful to God and he would refuse to bow down to the Roman emperor that he ended up losing his life for it. Um, hello, uh, that's a pretty faithful church if you ask me. Uh, none of us have ever had to put our faith on the line like that. So this was a church that had a glorious past. This was not a church where we would have all looked at and said, oh yeah, 
yeah, I could totally have seen that coming. You know, the, the kind of church that we all think of as the compromising church that it's just loosey-goosey doctrine and, you know, everybody come in and we try to accommodate everybody and we, we do this so we can accommodate this religious group and, and we never talk about how the blood saves and we never talk about Jesus Christ. No, 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 that's not what this church was. This church was very faithful to God and put a lot on the line to serve him. Now, it wasn't just Pergamos. Thyatira had the same background. Look at verse number 18. Verse 18, and it says, Unto the angel of the church at Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. He's basically setting himself up as a judge. Verse 19, I know thy works and charity. Can someone say what, what charity means in the Bible? Love. This is a loving church. Now hold on a second. I thought this was a bad church. He says, you're a loving church. And then he says, I know that charity and service. The, the word there literally comes from the same idea in the book of Acts where the deacons would take care of the widows. If you were to visit the church at Thyatira, they'd probably show us up in how well they took care of their people. Someone couldn't eat? Oh man, someone was at their door with food the next day. Someone had some issues going on, health issues. Man, someone was there helping them, serving them, coming alongside of them. This wasn't a bad church. This was a church that was loving each other, serving one another like we've been studying in our Bible classes. Look at verse uh, 19 again. In thy faith. This was a church that had their eyes set upon God, and they were taking steps of faith. They weren't living by sight. They were living by faith. And then he says, in thy works. They were doing good works. They were relatively godly people in a lot of senses and the last to be more than the first you know what he's saying there he's saying if i could look at your trajectory as christians you are a better christian now than you used to be but what did he say to both churches look at verse 14 but i have a few things against thee look at verse uh 20 Notwithstanding, that's a big word for but, but notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Church, I want to make the point tonight, and this is why we all ought to pay attention, because I think, I think we all recognize, I'm, I'm a little biased, okay, but we're in a great church. Oh, come on. We're in a great church. Yeah. We're in a great church, but listen, church, listen, Thyatira was a great church. Pergamos was a great church. These were churches that loved God. They loved people. They tried to serve God. They were doing their best to honor God. They had a glorious past. They could look back on some history and say, we've done what God commanded us to do. We faithfully serve God in our culture. And I could go to the grave side of Antipas, who was our pastor, who lived and died for the faith. And listen, church, we ought not to get caught up in thinking that even if we have a glorious past, that doesn't mean that it exempts us from a compromising future. Listen, church, it doesn't matter where Fellowship Baptist Church is in 2019. We all ought to guard our hearts against compromise because it could happen to anybody. It could happen to anybody. Compromise crept in even when these churches had a glorious past think about this i mean i think satan understands that the best way to get a church is to get it from the inside 
And it's the churches that are doing things for God, that are seeing people saved, that are seeing lives growing in the Lord. It's those churches that Satan wants to target. And so listen, we all ought to be on our heels tonight. And understand that Satan is after this church. Someone with me? Come on now. Number two. Compromise crept in when the churches refused to confront false teaching by influential people. That's how it happened. Look at verses uh, 14 and 15. We'll see this in the church at Pergamos. He says, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Now verse 15, he's going to kind of explain who these people are. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Well, that's pretty clear. (laughs) Uh, God's not really about what's going on in the church of Pergamos. Now let me explain something. He says, thou hast there them. The idea there in verse 14 is that these people knew that there was this group of influential people in their church, the Nicolaitans, who held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He says, thou hast there them. There's this group of people here who are teaching this doctrine, this this lifestyle that Jesus is adamantly opposed to, and no one's doing anything about it. No one's doing anything. These people, he likens them to this Old Testament story of Balaam and Balak. And I'm not going to go into all the details of that, but basically the story is this. This um, old Gentile king got a hold of an Israelite prophet and said, I want you to prophesy that the nation of Israel is going to fall. And the guy couldn't do it. He's going to pay him a lot of money. And every time he tried to prophesy against the nation of Israel, God just wouldn't let the words come out of his mouth. How's that for a good story? And then the, here's what the guy did. Because the price was so high and because the payout was so big, he said, you know how you want to beat the Israelites? Let them intermarry with people who worship false gods. Give it a generation and you won't even know a difference between an Israelite and a Moabite. Here's the picture in that Old Testament story. The price was so high, the benefit was so great that a man who was supposed to be living for God was willing to compromise. And here's what, here's what uh, is happening in the church of Pergamos. There were these people called the Nicolaitans. And, and here's what they did. Their compromise looked a little different. Again, in Pergamos, if you didn't worship the Roman emperor, you died. Uh, if they found you. And so there's this group of people that said, hold on one second, hold on one second, hold on one second. If we're going to live out our faith and live for God... We can't be dead. we got to be alive. And so they said, these geniuses said, here's what we're going to do. I don't think God wants us, you know, I don't think God wants us to be dead because how can we tell people about Jesus if we're dead? So it's okay to bow down to idols and look like you're fitting in as long as you also worship God. And then they went so far as to say, you know, th- this thing about fornication, I know it's really clear in the Bible that that the sexual relationship is bound to marriage and that everything the pagans are doing is totally off limits. But listen, I mean, that's what Roman people do. That's life in Rome. And so you're going to stick out like a sore thumb and probably get your head cut off that way. If you live for God and, and don't engage in that type of cultural stuff, then 
that's totally okay. So here are these people, the Nicolaitans, and here's what their doctrine was. Here's what their teaching was. Look at verse number, uh, look at verse number 14. Here's what their doctrine was. Here's what they were teaching. They said it's okay to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Now I want you to look over at the church of Thyatira. It's going to sound a little familiar. But he says, verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to, see, to teach and seduce my servants. Now pay attention to this. To what, church? Commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So the, the culture was saying, it's okay, to idol, it's okay to do idol worship, and it's okay to commit fornication. That was popular in the Roman Empire. And here are these people, they're coming to the church, and even though God clearly said, do not bow down to idols, I mean, it's one of the commandments, and do not commit fornication, these people were coming to the church, and they were trying to justify sin. They're trying to rubber stamp sin that God had already said was off limits. And here's the problem. This group, the Nicolaitans, and then this woman that's identified by name in the church of Thyatira, who was a very influential person apparently, had so much influence that that doctrine, that teaching began to spread in its nature. And so more and more people began to think, well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. We, I mean, I want to live. I want to continue and serve the Lord. And so I'm not going to I'm going to bow down to idols like everyone else does, and I'm not going to stick out like a sore thumb because I'm going to refuse to participate in this cultural practice. Listen, church, here, it just happens slowly. One person begins to say it, two people begin to say it, three people begin to embrace this teaching, and then all of a sudden there's this group of church, and nobody is doing anything about it. And here's, the, here's what, what Jesus is trying to show us tonight. Compromise happens in a church when people refuse to confront those who teach false doctrine. When, when, when no one steps up to say anything about it. Now, I, I know, you know, all of us are saying, look, <laughs> no one steps into the pulpit of Fellowship Baptist Church and teaches something like that. And hallelujah for that. Someone's grateful. I'm thankful. I come to church. Man, I, there, there's guest speakers. I have had no earthly idea who these people were. But you know what? I came to church and I knew they weren't going to teach something way off base. I knew that the Bible was going to be preached. I know that no matter what staff member gets up and preaches, they're going to try their best to preach the Bible. Somebody say amen. I'm thankful to be in a church that that's the culture. But listen, church, we got to understand that this is more than just doctrinal. The compromise that was happening here, it was only one, one side of it was doctrinal. Oh, you can worship idols. The other side was practical. You could commit fornication. And I, I think all of us need to understand that we want to think that compromise happens when pastors, you know, give up on doctrinal stances. No, no, no. Here's what compromise looks, at, looks like. When you know what the Bible clearly says, but you justify doing something else. Does that sound more like our world? Well, I, I know what the Bible says about giving, but listen, you, you have no idea my financial situation, the debt I have, and all this. Listen, that's just as much compromise as what he's talking about in this text. 
Because what is compromise? It's living out a version of Christianity that doesn't look like what the Bible talks about. Oh, I know I should forgive, but you have no idea what they did to me. Listen, church, you are walking a fine line when you begin to live out a different version of Christianity than Jesus talked about in the scriptures. And that doesn't just apply to what your doctrinal stance is and what's on our website about our doctrine. That applies to how you live your life and what sin you justify and what sin I justify and what lines I refuse to draw even though the Bible clearly draws them for me. Are we, fo- are we following together tonight? Compromise is more than just doctrinal. It's practical. And listen, churches, don't, churches aren't ruined just because someone changes what they believe about the Trinity. That's bad. But you know how a lot more churches are ruined? When there's a generation of people that stop living Christianity like Jesus taught it. You want to know how you lose young people in the church? When they look up at their mom and dad and they know what the Bible says and mom and dad don't line up with it. Listen, I, I grew up in a home and I'm not trying to throw my dad under the bus. Um, he would... If he's talking about the pulpit, he'd say the same thing. But I know what it's like to grow up in a home where I look at an adult who serves at the church and is in leadership at the church, and I go home, and I don't see any of that playing out at home. God help us if we live out something different at home than what's taught in the pulpit at church. And just as much as we should confront people who, who say something contrary to the scriptures behind this pulpit, we ought to let God change us when we live something different than what's found in the scriptures. Because if you let that carry on in your life, and you begin to live less and less like the Bible, and more and more like the world, and your life lines more and more with the world's philosophies than what the scripture teaches, you'll find out over time that you're way farther off from what the Bible teaches than you thought. And it hardly resembles. It hardly resembles. Jesus takes it pretty seriously. Look at verse number 16. Now he's speaking to like his church, like one of his churches. And look at the the words he uses to this church. He says, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You know what Jesus says to these people who had, who had begun to live out a version of Christianity that was totally contrary to what the Bible taught? He says, you are now my enemy if you do not repent. Because it's not just that I have a problem with what you're living. You are jeopardizing this church. And so I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. I will pronounce judgment upon your life. That's how serious Jesus is about compromise. And he says something even more strong to, to the woman Jezebel in the church of Thyatira. He says, and I gave her space to repent of her fornication, verse 21, and she repented not. And verse 22, he talks about how this sin was so grievous unto him that it was going to cost this woman Jezebel her life. That he gave her space to repent. He, he confronted her in some other settings that we don't know about. Somehow God was working to try and lead her to repentance, and yet she went, and so God said, fine, you're done. And here's what I'm trying to communicate, church. I know that this church is not a Pergamos or a Thyatira, all right? Are you with me? 
I, I don't come to Fellowship Baptist Church and I don't see anyone rubber stamping. You know, it's not the culture of our church to just rubber stamp what sins are acceptable out in the world. Thank God. I, I'm so thankful to go to a church like that. But we ought to be careful to make sure we never get there. Because like we talked about, we are not exempt from that. So I want to give you four practical ways we can all prevent compromise. And this goes down to the teenagers in the third row, all the way to any family who's a part of our church. I want to give you four ways we can prevent compromise in our church. Look at, here's number one. Here's number one. Apply yourself to doctrinal teaching. I was just speaking with a, a, a couple in our church this week about why they love the fellowship Bible classes. And I think this is the, the feeling of most people in our church that we love it when Pastor or Pastor Tyler or even our Bible studies give us practical stuff that is just right where we're at. Is someone else with me on that? Man, I love, I love series like One Another. I, I love series like uh, that we've done on finances and all sorts of other stuff that's just so practical like you would have to be like completely not present there to not have something that could help your life. But listen, practical teaching is really great. It's really important. We need that. I need help with my marriage. I need help raising my kids. I need help living out what the Bible says in a practical way with my finances and my habits and all of that. But listen, church, let us not get addicted to practicality. I hope that your heart is that whenever the Bible is open, and whether it's a, a practical sermon from the book of Proverbs, or it's an Old Testament narrative from the book of Joshua, or it's a doctrinal section in 1 Corinthians, I hope our heart and our culture at Fellowship Baptist Church is that when the Bible is open, I'm going to pay attention. It doesn't matter if it seems to fit with my life or not, but I'm going to apply myself, even when it's doctrinal teaching. Because you know why compromise happened in these churches? Because it, it, it wasn't just one man failed. Or one family failed. There was an entire church who was so understudied in the scriptures that no one thought that these people were off base. Are you following me? Like, you don't have a group like this who teaches something so off from the Bible without an entire church of people who somehow were not applying themselves to the scriptures. May we never get there. May our heart be that when the Bible is open, that here's my attitude. If God cared enough to write it, I should care enough to listen. If God cared enough to write it in the scriptures, then I should care enough to listen. Whether or not I feel like it fits in with my life. Are you with me? Here's number two. Develop the habit of studying God's word for yourself. Develop the habit of studying God's word for yourself. You know, I'm grateful we have Bible teaching at church, but, but there has to come a point in every Christian's life where they stop depending on the teaching of the pulpit to build their faith. Like, it, God never intended for that to be our primary source of spiritual nourishment. God wants us to have a personal walk with him. A personal study of the scriptures. And listen, we have the privilege of having a complete copy of God's word. But I remember reading the book of Acts about a church in Berea that somehow when they didn't have this, the printing press hadn't been invented for like another 1,400 years, they still, when they heard the teaching of the Bible, they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. 
Listen, church, there has to come a point in all of our lives as Christians that we don't just rely on the scriptural teaching from the pulpit to feed our souls, but we have a personal study of God's word. And can I just speak from experience? I get a lot more value out of that than preaching sometimes. Because here's the thing about preaching. Sometimes when preaching happens and God convicts me, I can look at a man who I could say, well, Pastor Prater's message spoke to me. But when I open the Bible and God speaks to me and challenges me, it's all that more real because it's just me and God. And God speaks to me. And so, I'll just tell you, when I started reading the Bible for myself, it did something to my faith because it was more personal. It was more one-on-one. And I'll just be honest, I have no idea what the numbers are, but it, it concerns me, it burdens me to think that there are people who regularly attend services but rarely read the Bible. That ought not be so. And I'm not trying to guilt you necessarily. I'm just trying to point out that the version of Christianity the Bible teaches does not look like I go to church. The only time I hear the Bible is on Sunday and Wednesday. Because we're supposed to have a daily, personal walk with him. I have a feeling that the people in Pergamos and Thyatira weren't studying the scriptures daily. Am I on track? <laughs> like, I don't think that these were avid Bible students that somehow got duped into thinking it was okay to worship idols made with stone and to commit fornication. Two things that are abundantly clear in the Bible. But how did they get there? Because people in the chairs, me and you, did not apply ourselves to God's word on our own. We ought to have our own study of God's word. Here's number three. Evaluate who you allow to influence you and your family. What, what happened in the church of Thyatira? There was an influencer, and her name was Jezebel. I don't know if that's her real name. Lord help anyone who got named Jezebel if they've never heard <laughs> Revelation chapter 2. But there was a person. Sometimes Jezebel, this person who spreads and influences people to live contrary to the scripture, sometimes it's a coworker that you allow to influence you in a way God didn't intend, and all they think about in their perspective is how, you know, the world thinks about things and sin and all of that. Sometimes Jezebel could even be a family member who influences you and leads you and, and is always questioning and always picking at your faith. And, and let's be real, you know who Jezebel was in Revelation 2? It was a church member. You ought to be careful, church, who you allow to influence your family. And sometimes it could be someone who attends church with you. Or sometimes it could be someone who's in the youth group with your teenager. Or in your Bible class. And I'll just be real honest. Th there are people that we have to guard ourselves against from influencing us. And listen, don't get me wrong. The Bible is very clear about developing relationships with people to lead them to Christ. But there's a difference between developing a relationship with someone where you influence them and a relationship where you allow them to influence you. Are you with me? I think that's where we draw the line. No, 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 you're not going to influence me. I'm going to influence you. And if that ever gets switched around, I'm out of here. And here's what happened in these churches. They had this group, the Nicolaitans, or they had this woman, Jezebel, who they just gave an open door to influence them and their family. 
Sometimes Jezebel is a Christian author or speaker. You know, there are people, church, that we ought to be real careful whose podcasts we listen to, whose books we read and allow to influence us. And I'm all about diversity of thought and learning from other people. But as soon as that starts to affect your thinking and lead you astray from the scriptures, you need to find a different person to read after. And it doesn't matter how big their church is. And it doesn't even matter if 70% of what they say is true. If it's influencing you to contradict the Bible, you need to kick them out of your life. Evaluate who influences you. Here's number four. Refuse to compromise on what the Bible clearly commands. You know, compromising churches don't begin with compromising pastors usually. That's part of it. But a compromising church is made up of compromising families. And it it starts with people who say, oh, I know what the Bible says, but... I know the Bible says that, but I don't think what the Bible says about the home really applies in 2019. Listen, church, here's where it starts. Here's how we prevent compromise in our church. It's not just by who we allow to speak in the pulpit, but it starts with people who love God and say, I will not draw a line different than where Scripture draws it. I will not justify sin that God has clearly condemned. I will not allow things into my life that the Bible clearly prohibits. Are you following me? And that here, here's what would happen. If there were families in these churches that stood up somewhere along the line and said, no, my family will not participate in idol worship, this wouldn't have happened. And God forbid, I mean, a pastor does that, certainly. But it's all on us to say, I'm not going to do what the Bible clearly prohibits so here's what we ought to do tonight I I want you to do two things and maybe this message isn't going to be inherently practical but that's how you live out point number one you apply yourself to doctrinal teaching but here's how we should respond to the message tonight I want you to look into your own life because sometimes when we think of compromise and, and, and straying away from the Bible we think of someone else We think of that church we read about, that story we heard. But I want you to look into your own life. Because here's what Jesus is calling us to do, is to look into your life and see, is there anything where you've justified sin? Is there a place in your life where you've allowed anger to have a foothold in your life, even though God says it shouldn't? Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Are you allowing unforgiveness to harbor in your heart, even though Christ calls us to forgive other people? Are you saying, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but? You know what Jesus says to us tonight? Verse 16, he says, repent. Clear it out. Get it out of your life. But here's the second way we apply this message. Just commit to knowing and obeying what the Bible teaches. That's simple. None of this would have happened if there were two churches that were committed to knowing what the Bible taught and obeying it. That's simple, isn't it? Give your life to knowing what the Bible says and obeying it.